Hello, this is Lafayette Faust, creator of the Nevermore Hollows podcast. Thank you for making the show a success. Please take a moment to subscribe, give five stars, comment, and share the show with your friends. It's the best way to help us grow and to be able to continue to provide quality horror content. Also, please support our new art director, Chris Madman Goins, at Black Sheep Studios TN on Instagram. He has some amazing Nevermore Hollows art for sale, signed by the both of us, as well as many other original pieces I think you're going to love. Now, for you horror hounds who like to have a good laugh, I invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called The Three Uncool Cats. In it, my two friends and I sit in a basement and discuss music, movies, and whatever else comes into our warped minds. I would really appreciate it if you would give it a listen. Now, with that out of the way, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. One year ago, Alfred Nether's wife, Lacey, died. Being a workaholic, he had thrown himself into his work, which required him to spend weeks at a time over in Atlanta, thus leaving his two kids, Jensen and Callie, to mourn alone. Jensen, his son, was 15 at the time and had always been emotionally strong. He was also an artist, which he used to channel his grief, and had worked his way to acceptance within a few weeks. It had taken his sweet Callie longer to bounce back. She had only been 12 when Lacey died, and it had taken almost six months for her to cope well enough to smile and laugh again. And that only happened with the support of her small group of girlfriends, a couple of which thankfully were a little older and more mature than her. Alfred was an attorney whose clientele consisted of politicians and Hollywood elites. He never lost a case, no matter how compelling the evidence was against his clients. Some of his success came from his years as a prosecutor in Atlanta. He had taken what he had learned about the inefficiencies of the American legal system and routinely used it to his and his clients' advantage. His most recent case was defending a United States senator who had been caught with a kilo of cocaine and a dead college girl in the trunk of her Mercedes. Alfred had used a legal technicality to get the evidence of the cocaine and the dead college girl thrown out. If there was no evidence, then there could be no conviction. Therefore, the case was dismissed. After the trial, he sat in the judge's chambers with the opposing lawyer, a good man named Willis, sipping whiskey with the judge. How do you sleep at night when you win cases for people who have committed such terrible crimes, Willis asked. 
Alfred had been asked this question before and responded as he always did. Don't even the guilty deserve competent representation? It's not my fault that our legal system has so many loopholes that I can use to aggressively represent my clients. The judge was a middle-aged woman named Martha who had spent her career in service to those in need. She was no nonsense and had always made it clear that she was not a fan of Alfred or his methods of twisting the law to his benefit. I find it interesting that you represent such morally decadent people, yet your favorite lawyer is Daniel Webster, the only lawyer to have ever stood up to the devil. The Devil and Daniel Webster was Alfred's favorite story ever since he had read it during his first year at Harvard Law. A poor farmer who was down on his luck sold his soul for seven years of good crops. When the devil came to collect, the farmer reneged on the deal, and Daniel Webster successfully represented the farmer in court, even though the devil had stacked the jury and the judge against him. I do love the idea, Martha, that a lawyer could defeat the devil at his own game. Martha had Alfred pegged as an arrogant son of a bitch. You think Webster was the greatest lawyer in history, other than you, I take it. Alfred smirked. I can tell you this. If that story had been true, and had I been the devil's attorney, the devil would not have lost. Alfred had just gotten back to Nevermore Hollows from spending two weeks in Atlanta securing that remarkable victory. It was after 10 p.m. when he drove his Bentley up to his house, which was a 3,000-square-foot Gothic Revival home that sat on a bluff overlooking Nevermore Bay. He parked beside his Porsche and entered the house through the door that led from the garage to the kitchen. He would be alone tonight. Jensen, who was now 16, was camping with some friends. He wasn't sure, but thought that Callie, now 13, had been staying at her best friend Taylor's house with the rest of her small group of friends. Alfred was thankful that Taylor's mother, Lena, had been there for Callie in a way that he could never have been. He stepped into his study, which was richly appointed in the finest art and furniture. He poured himself a double of his most expensive scotch and took a seat in his favorite chair. He considered his success as a lawyer. He knew he was good, maybe even the best in America, if not the world. He glanced at the bust of Daniel Webster, which sat on the coffee table. He raised the glass and toast and said, Here's to winning in the face of irrefutable evidence. He took a drink and nodded in satisfaction. Just as he was about to take another sip, there was a knock on the front door. He checked his Rolex. It was almost 10.30. He sat the glass on a table and made his way to the foyer. He opened the door to see a man in his 30s standing on the porch, wearing a tailored suit that would have easily cost $10,000. Alfred looked over the man's shoulder and saw an Aston Martin sports car parked in the driveway 
It was sleek with the dangerous lines of a shark. He turned his attention back on the man. He was fit, with dark hair and dark eyes. Confidence radiated from him. Alfred was intrigued. How can I help you? I am in need of an attorney, the man replied, and I've heard that you're one of the best. Alfred liked the way that sounded. Well, I'm glad to hear that I have such a stellar reputation, but I don't normally see clients at my home. Oh, I don't mean to intrude, the man replied, but time is of the essence. I have a particularly difficult situation and could really use an attorney of your caliber. Alfred liked this guy. Well, I'm not doing anything at the moment. Come in and we can discuss your case and see how I can assist. Alfred ushered the man down the hallway to the study. He motioned for him to take a seat, then sat across from him in his favorite chair. The only thing between them was the coffee table. I didn't catch your name, Alfred said. Why don't we start with that? The man locked eyes with Alfred, and with absolute conviction in his voice, he said, I am the devil. Do not insult my intelligence, Alfred said. I don't have time nor the patience for games. Do I look like a man who plays games? One of the reasons Alfred was so successful as an attorney was that he could read people, almost as if he had a sixth sense that allowed him to see beyond the facades that people use to hide their true selves. No, you don't. So I don't know why you're doing this other than you're insane. I'm not insane. I am the devil, and I can prove it. Alfred was strangely intrigued. I'll play along, he said. I'll let the evidence you put forth speak for itself. The man kept his eyes locked on Alfred. When you were eight years old, your uncle Teddy died, correct? Alfred nodded. Yes, but that's public knowledge. The man nodded. I'm just laying out the facts. You were the one who found him. You went to his trailer in the Pink Flamingo's trailer park to visit him. And he'd been dead for two days. Yes, Alfred said. He didn't like this memory. It was one that he pushed down deep and kept locked away. It was a memory that, if he were to logically examine, would require him to consider unthinkable things. Again, everyone knows this. The man leaned forward in his chair, his right elbow on his knee, his right forefinger tapping his chin as if recalling facts from long ago. Teddy was struggling with addiction, and because of that he lived alone. But you loved him and didn't want him to be lonely, right? Alfred tried unsuccessfully to block the memory that popped into his mind. He fought the urge to squirm in his chair because that would show this man that he had gained the upper hand in the conversation. You are correct, Alfred said. Then, 
in a smaller voice that he hated, he said, Nobody wants to be an addict. The man shrugged. I could present a compelling argument against that statement. Alfred was in danger of becoming too off-balance and losing control of the conversation. In an effort to reassert himself, he said, That's not what we're discussing at the moment. So far, you haven't convinced me of your claim that you're the devil. The man leaned back in the chair. He placed his forearms on the armrests and sat with the air of one who envied the throne. You found him face down on the floor wearing only a pair of sweatpants. You stood over him knowing he was gone. I mean, how could you not know? The trailer stank of death and he was bloated. Your heart broke for him. And after getting yourself together, you turned, intending to leave the trailer and call for help, but stop, Alfred said. The man smirked and pushed forward, exposing the facts. But as your hand touched the doorknob, your uncle groaned. Alfred was suddenly so weary he wanted to close his eyes, but in doing so the memory would become more intimate more visceral. So, instead, he glanced at the wall, then at the glass of scotch on the table. Then, finally, he looked down at the floor. Stop. There's, there's no need to go further. Oh, but there is, Alfred. If I stop now and don't fully present the evidence, you will never completely believe that I am the devil. Alfred looked up. Please. The man pressed on. When you turned to see where the grunting was coming from, you saw your uncle's hands begin to twitch. His fingers began to claw at the filthy carpet. Then he raised his head and looked at you with putrid eyes. One side of his bloated face was black from where the blood had pooled under his skin as he lay on the floor those two days. And he spoke to you, didn't he? Alfred heard himself answer in a tiny voice. Yes. What was it? the man said. What did he say? Alfred was no longer sitting in his million-dollar goth revival home overlooking the sea. The memory that this man had conjured was so vivid that it was as if he were reliving the moment all over again. He could smell the mold in the gold shag carpet. He heard the clock in the kitchen ticking away as if counting down the seconds left in his own life. He saw the thick string of brown mucus smeared on his dead uncle's chin and heard the wet gurgle of his uncle's voice when he spoke. He had tried to turn away from his uncle, to run out of the trailer. He wanted to scream, but the scream was stuck in his chest. He could only bear witness as his uncle raised his death-blackened face, locked his filmy eyes on his, and gurgled. Help 
me, Alfie. I'm in hell. It burns so bad. Alfred's heart pounded in his 40-year-old chest as hard and fast as it had on that terrible day when he was eight. He couldn't run from the horror as he had finally been able to that day. He was glued to his chair, squeezing the armrest in a white-knuckled grip. How, how can you know any of this, he said, his voice shaking. I, I never told anyone. I was alone in that trailer. The devil smirked. No, you weren't. I was there. Alfred snatched the glass of scotch with a hand that shook so badly that it splattered the amber fluid over his hand. He took a long sip, felt the heat of the scotch as it snaked down his throat and curled hotly in his stomach. He used his left hand to wipe his mouth and stifle a cough. Then he put the glass on the table and turned his attention back to the devil. I, uh... I, I don't know what to say. Reason tells me that this has to be some kind of trick. But as compelling as this is, as disturbing as it is, I just can't. He trailed off, unwilling to accept the truth, unable to deny it. Alfred had an antique candlestick phone sitting on his desk. It began to ring. Alfred glanced at it, confused. It was unusable, not connected to a landline. He simply had it on his desk for ornamentation. It rang again, a shrill cry that flensed his already raw nerves. The receiver rattled against the hook from which it dangled. Answer it, the devil said. Alfred didn't want to answer the phone. But he knew it would not stop ringing if he didn't. The phone would continue to ring until he either answered it or lost his mind. He stood stepped over to the desk and plucked the receiver from its hook. He held it to his ear and in a trembling voice said, he he Hello? His uncle Teddy, dead 32 years, said, Help me, Alfie. I'm in hell. It burns so bad. Alfred threw the receiver down on the desk. His legs were weak and he stumbled, afraid he wouldn't make it back to the chair before falling onto the floor. He was, however, able to make it. For a long moment, he sat in the chair, leaned forward, head down, eyes closed, processing all that had happened, weighing the evidence. Finally, after he had regained some composure, he looked up. Okay. You are the devil. Now what? Now, 
I hire you. What if I don't want to take the case? Oh, I'll make it worth your while. But there's nothing that you have that I want that you could ever give me. I see you're upset, the devil said, but I had to convince you beyond any doubt. Otherwise, you would have thrown me out of your home and you'd have missed the one thing that I can give you that no one else can. And what would that be, Alfred said. He had to fight to stop his voice from shaking. A way to prove you're the world's greatest attorney, the devil said. Because of my reputation as a cheater and a liar, the deck is stacked against me in my little dispute. If you can help me win, you will have proven, at least to yourself and those in the courtroom, that you are the best. Alfred found that he was shaking less. The shock of this supernatural encounter was seeping away, in part due to the scotch, and in part due to the fact that he had a flexible mind and knew when to accept the truth of any given situation. His ego began to reinforce itself, and he had to admit to himself that winning a case for the ultimate liar, where it was almost guaranteed that he had cheated, was enticing. Okay, he said. I'll do it. The devil smiled, gave a satisfied sigh, and said, Excellent. He plucked a business card from his coat pocket and handed it to Alfred. The address to the courtroom is on the back. I'll see you at three. A.M., Alfred said? That's only four hours away. I need details of the case. I need time to prepare. The devil stood and looked down at Alfred. Where's the challenge in that? Alfred had accepted this new reality and was no longer off balance. He was more in control of himself by the minute. What do you mean? he asked. The devil shrugged. You spent many years as a district attorney before starting your own firm. How many times were you handed a case you knew nothing about moments before stepping into the courtroom and winging it? Alfred knew that number. It was one that he was proud of. Seven thousand. And how many of those cases did you win? Alfred smiled for the first time since this disturbing conversation began. All of them. The devil nodded his head and winked in appreciation. Then I chose the right attorney. Show up at three and win my damn case. With that, he turned and left the room. A moment later, Alfred heard the front door open and close, then the low growl of the Aston Martin as it prowled down the driveway. Alfred looked at the card. The front was completely black, no writing that he could discern. He flipped the card over. On the back was an address that he recognized. That's not the courthouse. At 2 a.m., he grabbed his keys and climbed into his Bentley and drove to Eldritch Cemetery, 
which was located ten miles south of the town. It was a place for the dead that sprawled for acres across rolling hills. At its entrance sat the county's oldest Protestant church, which was made of stone. He drove through the wrought iron gate and followed the winding lane deep into the cemetery, past the gnarled oak that the locals called the spook tree, and parked in front of a moss-covered mausoleum. He got out of the car and took in the scene. It was dark. He was alone and the crescent moon was a gash in the dark sky that was scabbed over with black clouds blown in from the sea. There was a sudden flurry of wings just above his head. He ducked and watched as a raven settled atop the mausoleum. The pale moonlight glimmered off its black feathers, making it seem as if the bird had a spectral aura. It turned its black eyes on him, and said, Who are you? On the drive over to the cemetery, Alfred had fully come to terms with the truth of a supernatural realm. But when the raven spoke, his heart skipped a beat. I'm Alfred Nether, an attorney, and I'm here to represent the devil. The raven squawked. Ah! as if in derision. Then it said, Enter. Alfred pushed through the ornate door and found himself inside a courtroom that looked as if it had been transported from the 1600s. At the far end of the room was the judge's bench, made of dark wood. In front of the bench were two rough-hewn wooden tables and four wooden chairs. The room was lit by candles placed in sconces and on a large candelabra which stood in a corner. The courtroom was empty, except for the devil, who sat at one of the tables. He looked up at Alfred, smiled, and walked over. You're a few minutes early. I like that. I figured I'd get some facts of the case before the hearing, Alfred said. It's a contract dispute, the devil replied. Someone sold their soul to you? Correct, the devil said. I gave them what they wanted, and now that my fee has come due, they don't want to hold up their end of the bargain. I have to ask, Alfred said. Did you cheat? The devil gave a small laugh. <laughs> of course. How is it possible they can deny paying? Alfred asked. I thought you just showed up at the agreed-upon time and took their souls. End of story. In general, the devil said, but this case is a little different. The defendant did not use their real name, instead used a nickname of sorts. Since it seemed as if they had gotten the best of me, I decided to exercise my right to have my case heard in this court. Do you have a contract signed by both parties? Alfred asked. The devil reached inside his suit coat and retrieved a scroll. He handed it to Alfred, who stepped over and unrolled it on the table. It was supple, like vellum, and the terms were written out in elegant script. Is this some sort of leather or sheepskin? he asked. 
human flesh, the devil said. Alfred jerked his hand back, a disgusted look on his face. You've, you've got to be kidding. Oh, but I'm not, the devil said. I find that human skin holds ink the longest. And besides, it just seems appropriate to use a pound of flesh to seal a satanic deal. Don't you think? Alfred didn't know how to respond. Before he could think of anything to say, the door to the left of the judge's bench opened. The defendant was ushered out into the courtroom by two large horned beasts. She was in chains, her head down, and she was crying. Alfred was stunned. When he was able to regain his ability to speak, he said, Callie? Upon hearing her name, his daughter looked up, tears streaming down her terrified face. Daddy? she asked. Alfred moved toward her, but the devil grabbed his arm. No, no, no. You represent me, not her. I can't argue against my daughter, Alfred said. I can't. It's unethical. This is too personal. I won't be able to be objective. I don't give a damn about objectivity, the devil said. I just need you to win. And don't think about losing on purpose in the hopes that I lose my claim to her soul. If you lose, she won't make it out of this cemetery alive. I'll make sure she is mauled by a werewolf or ravaged by a vampire. Her death will be exquisitely brutal. For the first time in his career, Alfred's mind was spiraling, unable to see a clear path to victory. He was in a no-win situation. If he lost the case, Callie would be murdered in a terrifying and horrific way. If he won, he guaranteed her an eternity in hell. Anger flared inside his heart. You tricked me. The devil smirked. I just played you against your ego. What did she do? A year ago, she wanted to be a witch, the devil replied. I granted her certain magical abilities, and now she doesn't want to give up her soul. Why was this deal in place for only a year? Alfred asked. Wait a minute. That's where you tricked her. She joined a coven, the devil said, and on the night she was initiated and signed this deal, she may have thought it was all just a bit of drama and wasn't real, but hey, it's not my fault that she didn't take it seriously and specify more time. Alfred forced his anger and shock deep down and focused. He called upon all his legal knowledge to try to find a way out of this situation. As in all legal cases, details and context mattered. He needed more information. If he could speak to Callie, she might be able to give him something that he could use to save her. He turned his attention back to the devil. Does she at least have representation? She does, the devil said. Here he comes now. 
From the same door to the left of the bench, Daniel Webster stepped into the room. He was a stern-looking man in his fifties, balding, and carried himself with a no-nonsense self-confidence. He wore a suit that reflected the fashion of the 1800s, with a notch-collar tailcoat, a vest, and dark-colored bow tie. Alfred's mind threatened to shut down. This was all too much to process. How is he here? He's dead. The devil shrugged. You have a lot to learn about the spirit realm. The two beasts escorted Callie to the other table and forced her to take a seat. Daniel walked over and extended his hand. I'll be representing Callie. Alfred struggled to focus due to the dread in his heart. His head swam. He had to regain control of himself or he'd never find a way to save his sweet Callie. He needed to buy some time so that he could think more clearly. I'd like a few minutes to speak with you about this case, he said, shaking Daniel's hand. Daniel looked genuinely sorry. It's pretty straightforward. Her best friend, Taylor, belongs to a coven. Taylor's mom, Lena, is the high priestess. And last year, after your wife died, the coven saw their way to bring her in. Callie assures me that she thought it was just a club that promoted the idea of girl power and sisterhood. But how did it lead to Callie making a deal with the devil? Alfred asked. They had an induction ritual out in Dunwich Forest, Daniel explained. The devil showed up, made a big deal about her becoming part of the sisterhood, and Callie thought he was a friend of Lena's and that it was all a bit of theater. That's why she didn't use her real name. Many witches use a special name given to them by other witches once they join the coven. Callie used hers to sign the deal, which was Penelope Foxglove, and that's why we're here. This confirmed what the devil had said, but Alfred had more questions. Before he could ask, the devil said, Time's up. Here come the judges. Judges? Alfred asked. Daniel looked surprised at Alfred's confusion. Yes, three judges. This is a tribunal, and there's no need for a jury, but you do need to get two of the three to rule in your favor. Just then, the door to the right of the judge's bench opened up, and a demon stepped out, carrying a rectangular box made of black wood. The demon stood six feet tall, was thin to the point of being emaciated, and had a long face with black eyes. It had two small goat-like horns protruding from its head. It sat the box to the side of the bench and opened it. From inside, he retrieved three heads and placed them side by side on the center of the bench. Alfred's stomach churned at the gruesome scene. His heart skipped a beat when he realized the heads were alive. 
Then his blood turned to icy slush when he realized that the heads belonged to three of history's most notorious serial killers. The head in the center was H.H. Holmes with a black bowler hat and thick mustache. To Holmes's left was Richard Ramirez, known when he was alive as the Night Stalker. His thick, wavy hair reminded Alfred of a nest of black snakes. To Holmes's right was Charles Manson. His eyes were crazy and there was a swastika carved into his forehead. Alfred summed up his predicament. He was going to have to argue against the only lawyer to have ever beat the devil. But the judges had been wicked men when they had walked the earth. Surely they would rule in favor of the devil. The devil's twisted smile was full of cocksure confidence, and his eyes shone with delight. I know what you're thinking, Alfie. I assure you that though they are evil, they hate me for what I've done to them during their time with me in hell. There's no guarantee they will rule in my favor. In fact, I'd wager that they will rule against me just for spite. Alfred shook his head, forcing his dread deep. You're not making this easy. Come on, Alfie, said the devil. You can't blame me for being me. The demon that brought out the head stood straight and croaked. Court is now in session. Alfred was so mentally off balance that he couldn't think clearly. He took a deep breath, closed his eyes. The deck was stacked against him. If he won, Callie's soul went to hell. If he lost, she would be murdered. How could he save his sweet Callie? He pushed all those thoughts aside, calmed his mind. Then, inspiration happened. When he opened his eyes, he was in control. He had a plan that just might work. He might be able to save his little girl, but he needed to buy time to think it through a bit further. He had no choice but to proceed and hope he could work it out before it was too late. H.H. H. Holmes looked at Alfred and said, What is she charged with? Ramirez locked his gaze on Callie, his eyes full of lust. He licked his lips. Alfred stepped in front of the judges. The defendant made a deal with my client one year ago. She asked to become a witch and to receive the occult knowledge associated with witchcraft. The price was her soul. My client granted her wish, and when it came time to claim her soul, she refused to give it up. She is now in breach of contract. Alfred glanced at Daniel and nodded. He then took a seat beside the devil. And what do you say about all this? Holmes said to Daniel. Daniel stood and straightened his suit. We feel that Callie here. Ramirez interrupted Daniel. In a low, serpentine voice, he said, Callie.
Manson gave an unhinged giggle. His eyes rolled around, not landing on anything in particular, yet taking in everything. <laughs> am, am I sane? Daniel cleared his throat and continued. We feel that Callie, being only 12 years old, was not of sufficient age to make such a profound decision concerning her soul. And when she found that she had actually received these occult abilities, she refused to use them. And she separated herself from the coven and has been staying with her cousin, having no contact with the other witches. We take the stance that the devil tricked her, took advantage of her youth, therefore this contract is null and void. Holmes turned his bloodshot eyes to Alfred. How do you respond to that? Alfred knew that he had to stay the course to save his daughter, even if it sickened him to do so. I assume you all know that I am Callie's father, so I can speak to the fact that she is precocious. I have thus far given her the best education at the best schools. She has an IQ of 128, only two points from genius level. We are speaking of naivete here, not her intelligence level, Daniel countered. It is common knowledge that someone can test as a genius but remain naive of the truths of the natural world. And I would take it one step further. If little Callie here was naive of the truths of the natural world, she surely was oblivious to the deceitful machinations of the spirit realm. Ramirez's gaze had not left Callie. A surprisingly wet tongue licked his lips. Little Callie, he whispered, tasty little Callie. Alfred wanted to run up to the bench, grab Ramirez's head, and smash it to the ground. He fought the sickening rage, pushed it down. Manson, still not looking at anything in particular, said, Sanity is a small box, man. Such a tiny, small box. Naivete is not a good defense, Alfred said. We know that a person can be naive of the world, yet know right from wrong. Callie is the daughter of a lawyer. She knows the importance of reading a contract before signing. She knows this because I have taught her to never sign anything without reading it first. She made a deal, and she clearly signed the contract. But, sir, thinking it was all a bit of theater, she did not sign her legal name, Daniel replied. Therefore, the contract is non-binding. Alfred grabbed the contract written on human skin, grimacing as he did so. Here is the contract. And though she did not use her legal name, she signed it in her own blood. I may be new to this kind of court proceeding, but I would assume that blood is more binding than a scribbled name. She knew what she was doing. The contract is valid. What do you say to that, Webster? Holmes said, his tone condescending. 
You beat the devil last time with your charisma and weak argument. There's no jury this time. Only us. And it isn't looking good for you. Daniel stood his ground. I refute that my argument was weak. I simply illuminated to the jury the fact that the devil is a foreign prince who has no rights to secure an agreement with a free American citizen, thus resulting in a non-binding contract. It does not matter that little Callie signed in blood. The same argument that I used for the poor farmer applies here. The devil has no authority to make deals with free American citizens. Alfred now had the upper hand, and he knew it. Daniel was from a bygone age where sovereignty was much different than in modern times. Daniel, America has fundamentally changed since you made your original argument. It is now part of a global economy with its citizens routinely doing business with governments that do not embrace the ideals of liberty as they did in your day. I personally represented a deal between a colleague of mine and a Saudi prince. Therefore, I would say that a new precedent has been set to allow any American citizen to enter into any deal with any prince, including the Prince of Darkness. Oh, that sounds like the nail in the little girl's coffin, Manson said. He had a maniacal smile and was drooling. Well, she's guilty. Guilty. Oh, so guilty, Ramirez said. That settles it, said Holmes. It seems there's no more arguments you can make, old man. Daniel grimaced and wiped a bead of sweat off his brow. He turned to Callie and shook his head. I'm sorry, dear child. I'm afraid we have lost. No, Callie sobbed. She turned to Alfred. I hate you. You weren't there for me and Jensen. We had to deal with Mom's death all on our own. Taylor saw how devastated I was. She and her mom comforted me when you wouldn't. Then, when they told me they're witches and I could join their coven and that they would be there for me, help me heal, I thought it was just a silly little goth club. And when he showed up, I thought it was just some guy acting out the part to make it spooky. And now, because of you, my soul is going to hell. Her words punched Alfred in the gut. He fought back a groan. I'm sorry, Callie. I'm so very sorry. The devil stood and stepped beside him. If there's a lesson to be learned here, Alfie, it's that if you don't influence your kids, I will. Alfred winced as that truth sliced to his marrow. Can I have her? Ramirez whispered. Congratulations, the devil said, ignoring Ramirez. You are now the greatest lawyer in the world. He took a step toward Callie, his hand out. Come on now, it's time to go. Alfred's idea to save his daughter wasn't fully developed, but he had run out of time. Hopefully, it would come to fruition as he pushed forward. He had no choice but to try Hail Mary strategy. Stop. 
the devil turned, a surprised look on his face. What did you just say to me? Stop, Alfred said. We aren't done here. The devil gave a derisive laugh. Daniel was intrigued. The heads of Manson, Holmes, and Ramirez all turned to look at Alfred. Why would you think that? the devil said. Because I have one final argument to make, Daniel replied. Oh, I'm intrigued, said the devil, sarcasm dripping from his tongue. Let's hear it. Alfred steeled himself for the most important legal argument he'd ever make. I've never believed in you. I thought you were just an evil fictional character that was used to scare us into submission. But yet, here you are. The devil spread out his arms, an arrogant look on his face. Here I am. Alfred pressed forward. If you, the devil, are real, then logic dictates that there must also be a God. If that is so, we are told that he created this universe and everything in it. That means he owns everything. And if this is true, then he owns Callie and her soul. Callie cannot sell what she does not own. Therefore, the contract between you two is null and void. The devil grimaced. His eyes shone with disgust and anger. Oh, you clever man. But what about free will? You can't get around free will. She had a choice and she made it. My argument stands, Alfred said. You never convinced her that what she was doing was more than theater. That was not her exercising her free will to sell her soul. That was her playing along in what she thought was a dramatic initiation. The devil smirked, though his eyes were full of hate. That logic is a bit weak. Alfred shook his head. No, it's not, and you know it. The only power you have over us humans is the power to influence us. That's why you use deceit and try to trick us into signing non-binding contracts. Now we're done here. I have won. You will not be taking Callie's soul, nor will you cause any harm to come to her from this moment forward. The devil fumed. He was so enraged that he shook. His fists were down to his side. This isn't the end for me and you, he said. Then he snapped his fingers and everything went black. Alfred used a flashlight on his phone. They were standing in the center of the mausoleum. The devil was gone as were the demons and the heads of the serial killers and Daniel. He grabbed his daughter's hand and led her out into the night. The clouds that had scabbed over the moon were gone, and now the cemetery was aglow in pale light. He pulled Callie close. 
I am so sorry, honey. I am so terribly sorry. I can never make amends for leaving you and Jensen to deal with all this alone. Callie was crying, but she held him tight. I don't hate you, Dad. I was just scared. I promise I didn't know it was all real. I thought it was just theatrics. I know, Alfred said. He stroked her hair and fought back his own tears. Things are going to be different. As of this moment, you and Jensen and I are going to be a real family. We're going to be there for each other. Callie was no longer sobbing. I hope so. I missed you. Alfred pulled back, wiped her tears, and they headed to the car. As he walked, he held her hand. His heart ached at the mess he'd created by not being there for his kids. But as they drove out of the place of the dead, he looked joyously forward to the new life they would build together as a family.